Welcome to the Old Time Radio Westerns. I'm your host, Andrew Rines, and this episode's brought to you by Amazon.com. If you plan doing any online shopping, first go to otrwesterns.com slash Amazon to start your shopping experience today. And for this month, which is the end of February and into March, all of March is going to be our survey month. Uh, sometimes I do it in February, this time I think I'm going to do it in March, and I want everybody to go to otrwesterns.com slash survey, or if you're on your mobile device, just check out the new link, survey at the bottom. Beautiful feature that mobile device, makes it a lot easier, you don't have to update it, there's no software to download, no charging, no nothing. I updated it, everybody got the, as soon as I updated it, so definitely click that, fill out the form, it has all our shows on there, if you listen to all of them select each one uh, it's that time of year again this lets me know who's listening what kind of people are listening um, i'm not too much worried about income because i'm not asking you guys for money what i am interested in is what shows you're listening to things like that um, demographic you know how old you are and, and it lets me know my, what my demographic is so i try to get this at least once a year again go to otrwesterns.com survey or click the survey link on your mobile device now let's get into today's episode. Today's episode is going to be The Cavalcade of America. Original air date is number November 20th, excuse me, 1935, and the title is Willingness to Share. Now I'm slowly getting disappointed with this episode, with the series actually, and I don't know. If it gets to the point where I'm skipping it, I think I'm going to skip it in general. So Get ready for that, or what I mean doing is just saving it for a later date, maybe when we run out of stuff. But yeah, this series, at least in the 1930s, really sucks. I mean, some of them are good, and maybe it's just the quality just isn't there. Let me know. Send me an email, podcast at otrwesterns.com, or call and leave me a voicemail. I know some people like it, but I do need to know what you guys think. I may end up shelving this episode, this series. Uh, so let's get into it, and I hope you do enjoy the cavalcade of america It is with pleasure that DuPont quotes from a letter written by Mr. Roger Fenn, headmaster of the Fenn School of Boston and chairman of the radio committee of the Massachusetts Civic League. Mr. Fenn writes, Your program, The Cavalcade of America, represents a milestone in the development of family radio entertainment. On behalf of the radio committee of the Massachusetts Civic League, I congratulate you. End of quotation. This comment, typical of many which have been received since this series of broadcasts began, again makes us feel that these true stories of a traditional American spirit and character are appreciated by radio listeners. DuPont also hopes that these programs may serve to remind you of the contribution American research chemists are making, not only in DuPont laboratories, but throughout the land, towards the constant goal of better things for better living through chemistry. No 
one can deny that one of our most notable American traits is our willingness to help others, whether their need is caused by man or by nature. From the days of the early settlers to our present time, the American people have always been quick to organize in times of emergency. This willingness to help others is the subject of this evening's story, the first of which occurs in 1774 in Colonial Virginia. Our cavalcade orchestra now takes us back to those early days in the old South. Atlantic seaboard lie 13 colonies, separated by great distance, by slow communication, by differences in background and temperament, yet held together by an invisible and powerful bond of common interests and nationality. In Williamsburg, colonial capital of Virginia, young Charles Randolph has just finished reading a letter. It's outrageous. Abominable, sir. Let the innocent suffer. What, they'd blockade the port of Boston, the people would starve. Starve? Nonsense. Well, that's what Deborah says, Father. She ought to know. She's right there. You have a letter from her? By today's postal. Well, tell me, what does she say? Let me read. Yes. Well, I beg your pardon, son. I didn't mean to be impertinent about your personal correspondence. The letter isn't personal, sir. Not half as personal as I wish it might be. Her mind is so taken up with the coming siege, she has no time, it seems, to talk of matters of the heart. <laughs> But it's monstrous, sir, this latest action of the king. 
Ships of war surrounding the harbor. Not an anchor to be weighed. Not a sail unfurled. Not even a ferry boat to cross the river. Well, think what that'll mean. Suffering, starvation even. Boston won't starve. Not while the rest of the colonies have food. But, sir... Philadelphia is already sending supplies. North Carolina, they're taking up subscriptions. Virginia will do her part. How, sir? The Burgesses are meeting to decide on the course of action. Good. Good. I want to be there in the house to hear the debate. We won't be meeting at the house. No? The house of Burgesses was dissolved today. It was? For the governor. Because of the stand we've taken. Our vote of sympathy for Boston. Well, if the governor's done this, then your hands are tied. Officially. But we can still meet as an informal body. And we're going to meet. Where? In Raleigh Tavern, soon. And there we'll decide how Virginia can come to the aid of Boston. A little later, a representative group of citizens meet in the Raleigh Tavern. Gentlemen, the latest reports from Boston are most distressing. Ships are rotten in the harbor, unable to move. The streets are full of idle men, thrown out of work. The people face starvation. Now we're here to decide how we can help relieve the suffering and privation that now exists among our fellow countrymen in the city of Boston. We've already showed our sympathy, haven't we, by a day of fasting and prayer. Our fasting, unfortunately, doesn't put food in the mouths of the hungry. Our prayers won't bring down manna from heaven on the Boston Common. I'm surprised. I thought the House of Burgesses could do almost anything. <laughs> Just who are you, sir, to speak like that? A loyal subject of the king. Our loyalty at this moment is to our brothers who are suffering and in need. Now, friends, let's delay no longer. All of you here today who are in favor of raising subscriptions and sending supplies to Boston will please so signify. Aye. Opposed? No. No. Vote is carried. Now, the next step will be to appoint a committee to solicit contributions. Oh, Mr. Randolph. Yes, Mr. Lee. Father. 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 Yes, son. Let me go, will you? Go? To Boston. Let me ride there with the news. I want to be the one to bring in the tidings. You want to see Deborah Truesdale? Father, please. Yes, you'll be just one more mouse to feed and the hungry one, too. I won't stay, sir. Only long enough to deliver the message. And see your sweetheart, sir. <laughs> well, the bay mare will carry you the passage. Then, then I may go? Yes, go. And take this message with you. That the colony of Virginia sends sympathy and supplies in the name of the common cause. Put me up here for the night, do you reckon? Uh, yes, sir. Well, that's good. Uh, where are you bound for, sir, if I might ask? Boston. They all seem to be going that way these days. Oh, there. A gentleman from South Carolina, Charleston, I think it was, stopped here only last night. Yes? Yeah, carrying messages to Boston. South Carolina, he says, is shipping a thousand barrels of rice to the folks up there. Good. Yes, sir. Uh, these are exciting days, sir. Oh, they are indeed. 
Make sure now that my horse gets a good feed and rub down. Don't you worry, sir. I'm used to taking care of them when they're all wore out and in a lot of food. You, you should have seen Master Revere's horse when he come in here a couple of weeks ago. Revere? Uh, Master Paul Revere, silversmith he is in Boston. Oh. Rode down here to Philadelphia with a, a manifesto, I think they called it. Oh, there. I made the trip in six days. Yeah, it's good hard riding. Yes. Only waited over long enough to get letters from some of our leading citizens with promises of help. And he was off again. So Philadelphia's helping Boston. Everybody's helping, sir. Towns and cities and counties and all 13 colonies, from Maine to Georgia, everybody's given a hand. A town in Connecticut. Whoa, whoa, stop, stop, I tell you. Whoa, whoa, girl. Yeah, what's the idea of holding me up like this? I'm in a devil of a hurry. This is the Sabbath, young man. No travel is permitted through this town until sundown tonight. What's up? No back talk, sir. It's one of the laws of Connecticut, and I'm here to enforce it. But in my case, uh... There is no exception. Well, I'm on my way to Boston. What? Hey, Wolver. Boston, eh? Yeah. Yes, I'm carrying messages from Virginia. Our colony is sending food and... Yes, this town's helped, too. Forty bushels of grain we sent. Just a week ago. Oh, barely. Not on the Sabbath. Well, we... <laughs> oh, be off again. <laughs> Through the town? Yes. Well, I'm breaking a bull law. I'll answer for that. Get going. <laughs> You're up there. Nearing Boston, a large flock of sheep driven by a red-faced man in church sleeves blocks the road. Whoa, whoa, look out. Look out there, Nanny. I'm sorry, sir. There ain't no sorrier than I am. I beg your pardon? Whenever you decide to make a present of mutton, young man, don't make it on the hoof. <laughs> I've driven these fools cheap about 100 miles in all this heat. And the further I travel with them, the less opinion I got of them. You're taking them to Boston, sir? With the compliments of the village of Brooklyn, Connecticut. Yes, yes, I know. I rode through there. That's where Israel Putnam lives, isn't it? Uh-huh. I wanted to stop and pay my respects, but I couldn't spare the time. Yeah? Oh, I'd like to be mighty well to meet him. Anyone who covered himself with so much glory in the French and Indian War and rose so rapidly up through the ranks. Well, you wouldn't have found him home if he had stopped. No? Where is he? He's acting as nursemaid to this doggone flock of dumb sheep. Are you Israel Putnam? I am. Hey, you well, keep uh... moving over there. One side to quit her. Let the gentleman through. Boston, at last. It must have been dreadful, Charles, that long ride from Virginia, all alone. I was thrilling, Deborah. The dreadful part is going back, leaving you here. Don't worry about us. We're all right. My only fear is we'll, we'll all die of indigestion, so much food coming in. Well, nobody's offered this poor man anything to eat, I notice. Oh, my darling. Oh, I've been so excited, I completely forgot. You must be starved. Uh-huh. I'll get something for you at once. I'm too tired to eat much, honey. Just a bite and a dish of tea. Tea? Proud. Well, there's nothing like tea to refresh you. Nobody is serving tea. But down The whole province has renounced tea. That's one of the reasons we're blockaded. But your father tells me he has some tea that was honestly smuggled from Holland, that no duty was paid on. You take coffee, sir. Very well, madam. I'll take coffee. <laughs> It'll be ready in just a minute. Charles, I'm so glad you're here after that long, hard trip. Mm, I'm glad to be here, Deborah. To see you. 
and to bring you word that Virginia is sending aid to Boston. In 1774, help came to Boston from the people of all the colonies. A century passed. The 13 small colonies became a nation, reaching from the Atlantic to the Pacific. A hundred years wrought great changes. But the spirit of the American people remained the same, sympathetic, generous, willing to help. Our cavalcade orchestra plays an excerpt from the Largo movement of Dvorak's New World Symphony which the composer made use of American folk melodies. The theme of this movement was adapted for the song Going Home.
the American cavalcade moves onward. It is 1881 in Washington, D.C. A young woman named Clara Barton addresses the President of the United States and Congress. Seldom a year passes that our nation, from sea to sea, is not, by the shock of some sudden, unforeseen disaster, brought to utter consternation. What have we in readiness to meet these emergencies, save the good heart of our people and their impulsive, generous gift? Considering this condition of things, it has seemed desirable to so extend the original design for the Red Cross societies operating in other lands, to include not only suffering by war, but suffering in times of peace, by pestilence, famine, fires or floods. In short, any unlooked-for calamity so great as to place it beyond the means of ordinary local charity. At this very moment, the first local society of the American Red Cross in Danville, a town in western New York, is organizing relief for its flame-stricken neighbors in Michigan. They are without clothing, the bare necessities of life. Where is the place? Do you know? What place? Well, where they, where we take our donations to the folks up in Michigan. It's that building right up the street where you see the flag and the crowd. Oh, yes. They're going to be swamped, all right. Just look at that line waiting outside, will you? All of them fairly loaded down with things. They can use all they get, I guess, and then some. According to the papers, there are thousands who've been burned out, lost everything. Oh, it's just too awful. Hey, Bill, you, come over uh, here. You got any relatives out there? No. No, I don't know a soul in Michigan. But I know what fire's like, all right. Our house burned once. If it hadn't been for our friends, taking us in and giving us clothes and all, I... Well, I don't know what would have become of us. Yeah, my wife began ransacking the house the minute she heard to see what she could find to give. She dumped this whole pile of clothes here over my arm and told me to take them as fast as I could to... to... Well, what do you know about that? Well, here's a suit of mine that I was still wearing. Oh, it looks like a nice, warm one. Some poor fellow in Michigan will certainly be mighty glad to get it. I I like this suit. Well, you don't need it, though, do you? You have other suits, haven't you? Yes, And those folks in Michigan, thousands of them, haven't a rag to their back, no money to buy any. The forest fires have swept away everything they own, their houses, their lands... Oh, I wasn't objecting. I was only surprised. I'm glad to give anything I've got. You should be. It's a privilege. The folks I feel sorry for are the ones who have nothing to spare. The can't give. Oh, they've opened up the doors. The crowd's moving in. Come on, let's go. of our country, but somewhere disaster has fallen, rousing the united sympathy and generosity of the rest of the nation. 1888, a cyclone sweeps through the prosperous little town of Mount Vernon, Illinois, destroying everything in its path, leaving behind it a mass of ruins, hundreds dead or injured, and thousands homeless. It is the middle of winter when Clara Barton speaks with a group of citizens. We are desperate, Miss Barton. Uh, we don't want to beg, but if we it have to reach... It won't be necessary to beg. If the people of America once know... They must know. The news has been all the papers. They don't realize how bad things are. They couldn't realize, or they'd have offered help. I know Americans. You send out an appeal? No. I'll simply oh. state the fact. 
One sentence will be enough. Have you paper there and a pencil? Uh, yes. Then take this down and send it to the newspapers of the country. Yes. This pitiless snow is falling on the heads of 3,000 people who are without homes, without food or clothing, and without money. Signed, Clara Barton. Within a few days, the people of Mount Vernon were fed, clothed, and cared for, and with $90,000 cash and contributions, had started to rebuild their homes, as always the heart of America had responded. The following year, 1889, the Johnstown Flood, one of the most frightful disasters in the history of our country, taking a toll of over 5,000 lives and $12 million in property leaving in its wake desolation, poverty, and sorrow. In a mammoth tent, the relief work goes on. From New Bedford, Massachusetts, a consignment of mattresses and bedding. From Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a carload of furniture and ironware. From the New York Mail and Express, three carloads of feather pillows and mattresses. We'll need more wagons, Jim. We have six teams at work delivering now. That isn't enough. Not at the rate supplies are coming in. Get a hold of more. Yes, sir. I'll go out now and speak to Joe about it. Another batch of telegrams and letters, sir. Have you gone through them? Yes, sir. There's money in every one of them. Checks, bills, money orders. All the way from one dollar to a thousand. Amazing, isn't it? What? The whole thing. The tent cut down in a sea of mud. The dry goods box for death. And that's really all we need to do our part. The people have certainly done theirs. They certainly have. Close to half a million dollars. Half a million dollars? Yes. That's what the people of America have given for the sufferers of Johnstown. Just as the American people came to the aid of those who suffered from the Johnstown flood. So they have responded every time misfortune has cast its shadow. 1893, a hurricane and tidal wave off the coast of South Carolina. 1895, Armenian massacres. 1900, the Galveston flood. 1906, the San Francisco fire. 1908, the Messina earthquake. 1913, the Ohio flood. 1917, the Halifax disaster. 1919, the Corpus Christi flood. 1920, the Mexican earthquake. 1923, the Japanese earthquake and fire. 1927, the Mississippi flood. 1928, the Florida hurricane. Pestilence, famine, fires, and floods. Clara Barton spoke the truth indeed. Where they will strike, or how, or when, nobody knows. But this much we do know. The naked will always be clothed. The hungry fed. New homes will spring up, crops will be revived, business resumed. And right now, this week, this very day, each one of us has the opportunity to do his part to share in the privilege of sharing by answering the annual roll call of the American Red Cross. And the tireless workers of the Red Cross know that the people of America will help, as they have always done in times of need, throughout the cavalcade of America.
In tonight's stories, we've heard how the American people pull together in any crisis. And it's equally true that our American scientists have always been able to meet unusual situations. But scientists are somewhat different from average folk because they constantly look ahead and prepare themselves by study and experimentation. For instance, I've been hearing chemists talk quite a lot about pure research. So one day I asked the chemist just what he meant by it. Well, he said pure research is like a hungry husband making a raid on the refrigerator. He may not find anything, but then again, something interesting is likely to be tucked away in some corner. Or putting it another way, it's exploration. Only instead of exploring an uncharted sea or an unknown wilderness, it takes place in the laboratory with a test tube for a ship and a microscope for a spyglass. They study strange things, these chemists engaged in pure research. My friend told me how some of DuPont's research chemists are making a study of fibers, those tiny wisps that go to make up materials like cotton, silk, rayon, wood, and similar things. Chemists even study the colors of bird feathers. And now I'm going to shatter one of your cherished beliefs. It has been said that the gorgeous colors in a peacock's tail aren't colors at all. It's just a trick, done with mirrors, so to speak. Of course, you do see colors in peacock feathers, but apparently they aren't produced by color pigments. They're merely reflections of light, like the rainbow hues that you see in soap bubbles. Now, what's the practical use of such research? Well, maybe it points to a time in the future when our chemists can discover a way to make materials like those that nature has given the peacock. Please don't get excited about this. It's only a dream. But it serves as a good example of the way pure research brings interesting facts to light. Almost all important chemical discoveries have developed from research of this type. And DuPont carries on such research as a necessary step in creating better things for better living. DuPont will again present the Cavalcade of America. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. WABC, New York. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of otrwesterns.com. I want you to send me an email, podcast at otrwesterns.com. Don't forget to check out the show notes site, now formatted for mobile devices, otrwesterns.com. Call, leave me a voicemail, 707-986-8739. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash otrwesterns, and we can't forget Twitter, at otrwesterns. Don't forget to rate this podcast. Just search iTunes for OTR Westerns. You'll find all of our shows within one nice feed. 
and subscribe to each one independently and leave feedback. That helps me out, lets me know what you guys think, and lets others find the podcast a lot easier. This podcast is copyright 2012 under the attribution non-commercial share like copyright. For more information, go to otrwesterns.com slash copyright. That's it. Have a great day. Again, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed.